0: So welcome back to Eldritch Girl, and today I have St. Gibson with me. i oh, for my very scratchy voice today, but I'm okay. uh, getting over a very bad cold, so it's not, it's not the plague. It's not the plague, <laughs> <laughs> thank goodness it's not the plague. Um, hi St, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, my name is Saint. Um,
1: I am an author of gothic romance and fantasy. I currently live in Boston with my fiance and my spoiled Persian cat. I'm also a terror reader. And my book, A Dowry of Blood is a dark and dreamy Dracula's Brides retelling that's been out since about January or February of this year. So about six months.
0: Amazing. And you're going to read an extract for us. Um, Yeah,
1: I am. Very
0: excited. Yeah, absolutely excited. So, a
1: little bit of context. um, Dowry is narrated by Dracula's first wife. And so, the you that she's referring to in the first couple sentences of this, the man she's talking to is Dracula. And she is um, meeting another woman who Dracula is trying to make his second bride. And that's where we pick up the story. Brilliant. Yeah.
0: This is one of my favorite parts, so
1: Oh really? It's a good one. It's It's, the yeah, it's the ballroom scene. Yeah, I love it. Sorry. Excellent. I'm Continue. Thank you. No, it makes me happy. I found you among the crowd, looking handsome and impassable in your black doublet and jerkin trimmed with gold. I sank into my place on your arm, suddenly feeling exhausted. The night had just begun, but I wanted to curl up and sleep it all away. You look lovely, you said smoothing her knuckle over my cheek as though nothing was wrong, as though Magdalena didn't even exist. For a moment, under the scorching weight of your unadulterated attention, I felt like I was the only person in the world. Maybe it wouldn't be so terrible, a treacherous thought offered, to share you with another if you still looked at me like that when we were alone. Magdalena was leading the dance, a prim and provincial series of turns and bows. She darted in between her partners, lightly brushing hands and shoulders, in a complex series of touches. Every so often, her dark eyes flickered over to you. Dance with me, you said, already leading me out onto the floor. I didn't protest. I was happy to have something to do with myself instead of gape at the proceedings like a fish swimming through strange waters. I held your hand lightly and let you lead me through the first steps of the dance, quickly correcting my form by watching the gentry swirling around me. The world was a swirl of skirts and feathered hats, moving faster and faster as the musicians picked up speed. Even surrounded by the flowering beauties of Spain, Magdalena's loveliness was undeniable. She cut through the crowd like a shark darting through shallow waters, her teeth bared with laughter. She never missed a step and never stayed with one partner for long. Every inch of her, from the soft curve of her cheek to the sharp line of her jaw, tormented me. Do you want her? you asked. The words almost snatched away by the whirl of the crowd. What? We came back together, your hand of vice around mine. In the golden light of the hall, your eyes burned. I only ever saw that fire in your eyes when you were on the precipice of devouring something. It was all expectation and want. Do you want Magdalena for your own? To be your companion by day and warm your bed by night? Jealousy slithered up my throat as quick as a snake. But there was some other emotion mingled in too, dark and sweet desire. Do you? I asked, skirts snapping around my ankles as you twirled me. The whole world was turning, tilting on its axis. Ours is a solitary existence. It would be good for you to have a friend, a sister. I have never forbidden you from taking lovers, Constanta, remember that. You made it sound like a gift, a gentle reminder of my own freedom, but I heard your double meaning. Do not deny me this. I opened my mouth, but the words faltered. I didn't know what I wanted. My heart whipped into a frenzy by the wine and the dancing and the gleam in Magdalena's dark eyes felt torn in two directions. I never got the chance to answer you. We were torn apart by the demands of the dance. I was sent spinning into another man's arms while you crossed to Magdalena, slipping in beside her as close as her own shadow. No one could deny the light radiating from her face when she looked at you, like the halo of gold on a holy icon. Her cheeks were flushed pink from the vigorous dance, tantalizing proof of the hot lifeblood pulsing just beneath the surface of her skin. How can I blame you for wanting her, my lord, when I wanted her so badly myself? I strained to see over the shoulder of my partner as he turned me in dizzying circles. Older than me, handsome, with a healthy tan on his brown skin that told me his blood would taste like ripening summer apricots in the dust of a well-traveled road. I barely saw him, barely registered the appreciative smile on his face. All I saw were Magdalena and you, two lovely devils indulging in a little human revelry. Your hand fit perfectly into the curve of her back. Her elegant, sloping neck invited admiration as though she already knew what you were, as though she were teasing you. You lowered your mouth down by her ear, lips brushing the lobe as you spoke, something private and urgent. A slow smile spread onto Magdalena's face as she clutched you closer. What were you telling her? Our secret? Or a more carnal proposition? My feet faltered over the demanding steps of the dance, and I broke the tight circle of my partner and I's bodies. He tried to coax me back, the cadence of his Spanish, insisting that there was nothing to be embarrassed about, that we should try again but I brushed him off, took a few staggering steps further onto the dance floor. The couples whirled past me like exotic birds winging by in a flurry of feathers and my stomach clenched. I felt like I was slipping out of my own body and floating above it, observing myself as a spectacle. There was a small touch on my arm and I turned to see Magdalena smiling that wry smile at me with her hair coming loose from its elaborate styling. There was a bloom across her chest, a slight sheen of sweat glimmering at her hairline. She looked like she had just stepped out of an opium dream, all blown pupils and reddened mouth. Your Excellency, I breathed, my heart suddenly in my mouth. You will forgive me. I do not know the steps of this dance. Moving with shameless deliberateness, Magdalena cupped my jaw in her hand and kissed me full on the mouth. Not the light touch of a friend's kiss catching the corner of my lips, but a kiss full of intention and warmth. My head swam as though I had just emptied a whole glass of wine, the entire frantic room falling away. It only lasted an instant, but by the time she pulled away, I was completely inebriated. Then I shall teach you, she proclaimed, and took my hands into her own. Do you want to lead, or shall I? I stammered foolishly, throwing my eyes wildly around the room. Magdalena threw her head back and laughed, a beautiful wolf savoring the terror of a rabbit. Me, then. It's as easy as breathing one foot and then the other, and don't overthink it. We moved together across the floor, fluid and unified. If any of her subjects had seen the kiss, they had their disapproval well, restraining themselves to gossiping behind spread fans. No one stared or reeled in shock, merely continued with their dancing and drinking, eyes politely averted, as well-trained as her servants then. This must not have been the most scandalous behavior they had seen from Magdalena. You must never overthink any good and pleasurable thing, Magdalena went on, her cheek almost pressed to mine as we twirled. The wine on her breath was as sweet as black currants. I wanted to taste it on her lips as much as I wanted to taste it in her veins. We should never deny ourselves any pleasure in this life. I could almost hear you in those words. Had you coached her, I wondered? No, there hadn't been enough time. Maybe she really was a soul after your own likeness. We glided together until the song was done and then, out of breath and giggling from our exertion, raised our hands in applause with the rest of the crowd. The musicians bowed, mopping sweat from their foreheads. Magdalena tucked her arms through mine and led me with deliberate steps through the crowd, leaning over conspiratorially. You must sit with me tonight at dinner. I must have you close, Constanta. I want us to be the very best of friends.
0: Oh, I love it. (laughs) Thank you. I love that. Um, I, yeah, this, the whole premise of the book is so good. Like, it's just such an interesting dynamic between them, and it's such a really good character-driven story. Um, so, I wonder when did you first read Dracula, which is the, the source material for it, and which versions or adaptations of that um, were the most influential for you when you developed uh, Dowry as an idea.
1: Yeah. So I first read Dracula when I was in high school. I was probably about 15 or 16. We had to read it in my English literature class. And I I remember liking Frankenstein way more than Dracula. (laughs) Um, Dracula was not my favorite initially, but it really captured my imagination because it's such a strange book. Like just a lot of weird things happen and a lot of things aren't totally explained. And you have these really compelling um, characters. Like I think that Dracula is on one hand a cautionary tale about female sexuality and like the liberated woman in a way, but it also has these really compelling female characters Um, like Mina is so strong in her own way and is really, really interesting. So I was definitely intrigued by Dracula, but I just became like a vampire enthusiast in high school and I still am like I call myself a vampire apologist. I got really into Anne Rice, who I still very much admire. I admire her her body of work and kind of the role that she plays in the literary canon. And I got into a lot of Dracula adaptations. So I think that dowry is actually more a response to Dracula in the pop culture imagination than it is a response to Bram Stoker. There's definitely like Easter eggs about the book in dowry, and it derives its inspiration from the Dracula mythos. But for me, that was uh, made a lot more of an impression on me through like the Coppola Dracula film. And honestly, the 2004 Van Helsing film. Yes. Like, if anyone has spoken to me, they know that I love that movie. It's, if you haven't seen it, the 2004 Van Helsing film is like a creature feature with like Dracula and the Brides and werewolves and Frankenstein that has Hugh Jackman in it. Um, And it's this like action adventure fantasy film. But I remember watching it when I was like 12, quite young, I think before I even read Dracula. And you have these three like just gorgeous women who are so over the top dramatic and chewing the scenery. And they have this interesting dynamic with Dracula in the movie. Like they kind of have their little like lover's spats and they have this very like passionate connection and it's like a it's a polyamorous harem you know and I remember watching that when I was like 12 and being like okay I want to be in a poly the vampire harem like that sounds pretty good um so I think that like I said a, a lot of what a dowry of blood is doing is responding to Dracula movies it's also responding to um uh Dracula Untold which I don't necessarily recommend it's not my favorite one but I was really excited for it when it came out and there's a scene in Dracula Untold where there's like a close up on a dying village girl after there's been a war. And I was like, oh, my God, she's going to be the bride. It's like he's going to he's going to turn her into a bride. And that's not where the movie went at all. But that's what I decided to do with the book. So that one frame inspired like all of Constanta. Um, so that's just some of the inspirations. And then there was many more Um, like stage adaptations the the staged adaptation of Dracula the Dracula musical um, and also uh, musicals like Moulin Rouge and Elizabeth uh, the German language musical were huge influences as well
0: amazing I love the Van Helsing film I've watched that so many times it's Um, my comfort
1: watch I just watched it last week again (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I love it. And um I love the uh, Francis Ford Coppola version as well. I think it's so aesthetically beautiful. Yeah. And um Luke Evans did a really good job of Dracula and told. I was really sad that they're not going to do the the Universal Studios monster reboot. I know. Dra- me too. That was just such a it was just, such a good idea. <laughs> it's like oh no. And I think I know the frame that you mean. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, it was
1: just kind of a yeah. lingering lingering frame. And I was like, oh, this is where we meet yeah. the brides. Like he's going to, he's going to take these women from like his country and turn them into the brides. And that didn't happen. He was like oh. in, in love with his, you know, about his his wife which was his beautiful love story is very touching but I thought I was going to get vampire brides and I'm all about the brides I've been on the bride's side since I was 12 years old watching Van Helsing like I get so sad when they die every time
0: yeah yeah absolutely I think it's interesting when um you have something that's so obviously like a Uh, polyamorous dynamic and then some adaptations go no we're not going to deal with that we want to focus on that or Mina as reincarnated wife um, yeah that sort of and then so it's that one true love right dynamic Which, which is a really lovely trope Um, Yeah,
1: no, I I love that trope. And it's like, it's such a classic of vampire movies and vampire literature. But I do find it interesting how in a lot of the adaptations, and I think this is why the Van Helsing one is so compelling to me. In a lot of the adaptations, we do meet the brides and they get their awesome like introduction and they're always like stunningly beautiful and like fangs and blood. And it's this great vampire moment. Um, But they don't often interact with dracula very much like they don't really interact with dracula very much in the coppola adaptation they don't really interact with dracula very much in the stage musical um like they might have a couple of lines with one another but it kind of is like he just he's like of course i have a harem like here's my harem like i'm a villain Um, but in the van helsing movie they have all this banter and they like kind of go back and forth and have like lover squirrels and embrace each other and like actually seem like they're in a relationship and that was so compelling to me when I was when I was young it's it's very campy it's very over the top um but it there's there's some genuine moments of connection there that I was just really intrigued by Um, and I wanted then to write an entire book that was just about the bride's intimate relationships with each other and with Dracula. I'm trying to
0: think of any other adaptations that do that as well. And I don't think there is. Like, um I was thinking about the Hammer Horror franchise with Christopher Lee, who mm. ends up with and he doesn't have he, he tends to only have one bride at a time. In yeah. you know, um and um then he goes after the village girls, but they again like there's still like the vampire girl. There's not like they didn't give him like a whole host of Vampire bride girls, even in the Hammer adaptation of Dracula, ostensibly of Dracula, which was I uh, know kind of a very loose adaptation. He mm. still only had that one bride, and she only existed for the Harker figure to yeah. um, to to try and rescue her and fail. Yeah, and that was like the whole point. And so the brides tend to get reduced to. Mm-hmm. I think in a lot of adaptations they, they get reduced to just these um either caricatures of the damsel in distress that you can't rescue and that's right. an inverted thing so that the, the hero tries to rescue them but then it ends up in danger because they're actually vampires and it's like a honey trap thing. Exactly. Or they're just very decorative. And they're very sad. Like in the Bela yeah. version, like the three are dressed in those sort of... Di- you've got the diaphanous nightgowns. You've got them coming in through the French windows. And there's, for some reason... Oh, because of the censors, isn't it? You couldn't have rats. They have possums all over the castle instead. And you, have you seen this version, the 1931? No, I have not. So the, the 1931 is an absolute beautiful film. Um, it's obviously black and white. And they couldn't show... Um, they were doing things with cameras that you couldn't do, you know, nobody had ever done before. So you have yeah. him um, walking through a cobweb that is stretched all the way across the stairwell just because they could. And it, the it, the cobweb remains intact because they use sort of magical camera trickery. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> uh, yeah. They weren't allowed because of the sensors to show blood and they weren't allowed to show fangs and they weren't allowed to show rats or anything. That's very essential scary. to a Dracula adaptation. <laughs> There's this close-up on his mouth, just before he opens his mouth, and it's the anticipation, and then it fades to black, and it's done so well, and you know exactly what's going to happen because everybody knows that Dracula is a vampire, so you can imagine that. Um, but yes, yeah, so um, they had the brides in opaque nightwear, obviously, because censorship, but and sort of floor-length, and, and with the ruffles up to their necks, And they still manage to look incredibly sensuous. (laughs) But that's, and that's, uh, you know, they don't have any lines. They don't have any.
1: Well, the brides often don't speak. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Like they're kind of, I think the the brides are like this institution from filmmaking that when you make a, you make a Dracula adaptation, you have to have, you feel like you have to have the brides. Like even in campy ones like Dracula 2000, um, like the bride, you do have some brides and I guess they do talk in that, but like they don't play a huge part. But I think part of potentially what happens in adaptations is like, and this, I think, is in the text as well. There's like this Madonna horror complex almost, where the brides are like hypersexualized, devious women that are like frightening and scary, and then you have the more the the honorable Victorian human woman who is being tempted with sexuality and like who is trying to fight off the vampirism, which is more um, more sexual and more embodied. Um, But the brides are always just, like, these really sensual creatures, and that might be part of the reason why they have not been totally fleshed out sometimes, because it's just easier to make them sexy window dressing.
0: Which is interesting, because in the book... They're the inversions of motherhood because they eat babies. They eat babies, yeah, exactly. They literally eat babies. And that's exactly what happens to Lucy, is that instead of becoming the um, you know, archetypical wife and mother, which is her projected pathway after she's chosen one of her suitors because she is basically the I mean Lucy's always struck me as she's the female version of Dracula because she has so also many has suitors. three suitors exactly and she's like oh I wish I could marry all of them like, oh how scandalous well <laughs> you know um which and nobody's played with that in adaptations either like no. um, I think Francis Ford Coppola does um in that version but generally a lot of the adaptations ignore that part of Lucy Mm-hmm. and try to make her or um, in the 31 version she's um, she's kind of a flapper oh interesting yeah and she's got the short bobbed blonde hair very short cut whereas Mina is a bit more conservative yeah Um, and wears more conservative evening dresses whereas um, Lucy is coded as a, kind of like a good time girl kind of but yeah. um, affluent but um, it's it's really interesting if you look at the costume differences and that kind of thing. So that kind of starts to to do something with that. But yeah, like she, and Lucy then goes off and starts eating children. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, you have that terrifying shot in the Coppola version where she turns around in her like vampiric wedding shroud and she's holding the baby, you know, like the child.
0: Yeah, yeah. and I think um, that's actually what I like about the Van Helsing version is that they aren't uh, what well, they, they are also baby eating monsters, but they want their own kids. <laughs> they and do. It is
1: so it's... interesting. It's a vampire
0: infertility story. <laughs> yeah. like, that's the whole, like, I don't think we're spoiling the film. Like that is the premise of the film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> oh,
1: the whole God, point kids. is they're trying to have vampire babies. Yeah. Um, which is like, just like a very, I don't, I can't, people always like when they poke holes in vampire stories, they usually bring up issues of fertility or it, with marriage and children. Um, But I don't see a lot of movies that are like, let's build a mythos around this. And so in the Van Helsing movies, the children, the vampire children who are like monstrous because the vampires have like sexy human forms and then monster forms. The vampire children um, are born dead. They're born undead and dracula is trying to bring them to life using like frankenstein's technology there's a lot going on in this film Um,
0: there is a lot going on yeah (laughs) but it's a really
1: interesting like you
0: said inversion
1: of the trope and it's also they're allowed the brides in that movie even though they have a relatively small part are allowed to like want things and um, are allowed to be sexy and scary but also we see them grieving when one of the brides dies we see them grieving when they can't get their children to come to life we see them arguing with their spouse dracula and trying to salvage their relationship really like it's it's a marriage in trouble story <laughs> which is one of my favorite tropes is a marriage in trouble <laughs>
0: how did you then start to develop each of the brides um in terms of creating their personalities when you were first fleshing out the ideas and what why did you um i really like Alexi as well he's one of my favorites and i was wondering why um yeah i oh, he's so sweet. i can't choose between them really like i go through phases of liking each like deciding <laughs> which one i like best um but um yeah so uh why did you um choose to make uh, Alexi one of the brides and um, you know did you think about basing around archetypes or yeah uh, that kind of thing
1: I was definitely working with archetypes when I wanted to create the brides like I, I think first of all when I sat down to write this book I was like you're doing a Dracula book and that felt like a really big undertaking and it felt like stepping into really big shoes and so I was like don't try to do everything don't try to address every plot point just build it from the ground up the way you want to do it and just write the characters you want to write. So it's not like I freed myself from having to be like, this is my take on vampires. Like totally, this is everything I think and believe and how I would have written it. Like, it's not that. So that gave me a lot of freedom with the characters and I could build them from the ground up. Like there's no, there's no Mina figure. There's no Lucy figure. Like they're kind of my own creations. And so I worked with archetypes initially, to do that, I think that like, when I started out, there's three brides, Constanta, Magdalena, and Alexi, in order of when Dracula acquires them. Um, And Constanta the first bride is kind of a response to like Anne Rice vampires who are very existentially and religiously tormented. And I would read those books when I was younger and be like, I really wish there was like a vampire that had this like intense inner world and intense sense of like existential and spiritual meaning that wasn't just like i am a damned preacher and god hates me like constanta has a very complicated relationship with existence and morality and god and she kind of lives in the gray areas she isn't like she doesn't she doesn't necessarily think she's a bad person or a good person she doesn't necessarily like she's still a very faithful person even though she is not sure what she thinks about god and religion So she was kind of a response to that, the the vampire that has existential angst, she was my response to that and the way that I would have wanted to have a conversation with that trope. Magdalena initially is just kind of like the beautiful sadist. Like she is this glittering, gleaming, like noble woman who can be very cruel and very firm when she needs to be. And she takes to being a vampire very well um, and she doesn't have the same like moral hangups about killing that Constanta does, but there's a lot of depth to her. So I really like that archetype. She very much, I think Magdalena is the most classically a vampire bride. Like she's gorgeous. She's hyper feminine. She's got sharp teeth. She's going to eat you and she's going to love it. But I wanted to go deeper than just like the beautiful sadist trope. And so she also has um, kind of a complex inner world she deals with um depression and mania and she doesn't just kill for sport blindly like she kind of she and constanta have their own feelings about murdering basically um and so i wanted to have a bride that really was just that fun sexy scary vampire bride but who had a lot of depth and heart to her as well and felt like a real person and then Alexi is a play on Dorian Gray, really, is like what he is like. He is um, he there's a quote at the beginning of the book where like Constance is listing the reasons why she thinks the Dracula kept all the brides around. And she says Magdalena for her brilliance, me for my perseverance and Alexi for his loveliness. So Lexi is just like this beautiful young man in love with life. So he's the hedonist, he's the, he's the Oscar Wilde character, he's the Dorian Gray, the in love with life, making friends with everyone, wants to have all the pleasure in the world, wants to be young and never die and party all the time, which is another vampire archetype you get in like Lost Boys and things like that. So he was a response to that archetype. So basically it's like you have the institution of the Anne Rice vampire, the classical vampire bride, and then the like Dorian Gray hedonist sort of figure. And I started there and then I explored them all and kind of their interactions with one another and deepened the characters from there. And so you asked about Alexi. Who is a fan favorite i love my boy um and i that was just like a whim i was like i want one of the brides to be a guy like i i knew when i sat down to write this that i wanted it to be incredibly bisexual i wanted every character to be bisexual i wanted everyone to be in an intimate friendship familial erotic and romantic relationship with every other character on their own terms and it was just more interesting to me to introduce a, a, another man into the mix. Um, and I just I I love that kind of Dorian Gray kind of archetype of this young, beautiful young man who's like burning too bright at both ends and is in danger of like burning out. And so I pulled that archetype and I, I kind of made that into Alexei.
0: Yeah, I just I love the. Um... The different ways that the characters interact and that they thank you yeah it's so good like <laughs> um also over time because like the story takes place across a large swathe of time yes how many is it it's a couple of centuries isn't it because it is Alexia- so
1: we're, we're starting like do not quote me on this guys i did the research and then it all left my head but i think we're starting like 1300 like
0: 1320
1: yeah, um, yeah. 1300s and then Magdalena is um early renaissance and then Alexi is um uh the t- there is an exact year I can't remember but he's the 20s um and then we follow them or maybe that the teens the teens of the 20s and we follow them through through about the 30s
0: the, is 1930s. When, the
1: 1930s the yeah. 1930s i think is when <clears throat> when it ends yeah um well I, I mean the story goes on but that's when the book ends um so yeah it is it's like hundreds and hundreds of years it's quite a long swath of time
0: yeah and um i'm just thinking about the the how you sort of maintain believable dynamics um and levels of change between those characters Um, over that amount of time I think you did it really effectively because you didn't try and show every little detail of every conversation that they had for hundreds of years it should have been impossible Um, but you did it really effectively in terms of just um, giving snapshots which really worked well I thought and like um, I really enjoyed that and you sort of give um, that impression of kind of racing through time at like Mm -hmm. these different different speeds and I wondered how you found the process of um keeping those dynamics developing
1: mm-hmm. in a
0: believable way when you were dealing with that amount of time and how yeah. how you feel like immortality plays in in that in the way that they experience time and and so on like I just wondered if you had thoughts about that <laughs> yeah no that's a
1: wonderful kind of bundle of questions I think, first of all, I'm really interested in the way that relationships, especially romantic relationships, evolve over time. Um, And I think that people changing and the dynamic of your relationship changing is like a natural and healthy part of a long term relationship. But that is a very difficult thing for a lot of people to adapt to. I think a lot of times we want the beloved to be the same beloved that they were when we met them but people grow and change. And if you want to be with someone for 20, 30, 40 years or eternity, you have to be comfortable with them kind of being various different people during your time together. And sometimes that results in a parting of the ways and sometimes it doesn't, but it was a theme that was really on my mind a lot. And I was like, what would that be like, even if like it's already an undertaking to spend your whole life with someone, what would it be like if your marriage is until the end of time? you know, what would come up and what would change. Um, and I think like the dynamics between the vampires do change. Like primarily if I think everyone who is familiar with dowry knows this, but just like a general warning, a dowry of blood is about intimate partner abuse. Dracula is an abusive partner and it's about um, the brides growing away from him and getting away from him. So you have the decay of the relationships in the context of intimate partner abuse on the Dracula end. But you also have relationships that change and grow, like Constanta and Alexi, start out with having feelings for each other, but not really acting on them and, and being more of like, having more of a familial relationship. And then their relationship becomes more romantic and more sexual later on as they grow and develop as characters. And as Alexi becomes more mature and kind of has a, a more sense of himself outside of Dracula. So things like that happen. Um, I think something that I was really interested in exploring in this book that helped me make those decisions was how every vampire deals with immortality differently. Um, And immortality in dowry is kind of a terrible thing. Like the vampires do find their own happiness, but it really gets to you after a while. And like it exacerbates mental illness or it creates existential angst or it decays relationships. Like there's this idea that we're not meant to live forever and you have to find your own way through to happiness. Because if you don't really try, it's going to kind of consume you. So all the vampires have things that they love about being immortal and things that are kind of trying to consume them and destroy them about being immortal. Um, I think even Dracula, like he gets more possessive and more paranoid over time as it starts to weigh on him more and more. And in the beginning, he's not so bad. And then by the end, you he totally can't live with him. Um, so that's kind of the various themes that were at play when I was making those decisions. Does that answer your question?
0: Yes, it does. I think it's really interesting um, because I think when you're dealing with, um, longevity in relationships like just a normal amount <laughs> a normal human amount of longevity yeah like that's there's so much in that and I think you're so right because well not only does your partner change I mean you change as well exactly um so you're basically it's like being in you know you kind of just have to rediscover each other and you keep rediscovering each other and that's um that's beautiful either, that's exactly it yeah it's it's, it's either something that Um, keeps the relationship going or it's something that you know you're rediscovering yourself as much as you're rediscovering your partner and potentially that's something that can break you apart because it's you're not that person anymore they're not that person anymore and you're not the right people to be together at that point in your life so right yeah it's it's a double-edged sword for sure (laughs) yeah yeah um can't spoil how it ends but i loved (laughs) the um the short story sequel that you had in your newsletter. Oh, thank you. So
1: I good. loved writing it. It was cleansing. It was healing for me.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it was, oh, it was just such a lovely, yeah, it was such a lovely kind of um, follow-up to it. And you got to see like what happened afterwards. And um, yeah, and I really like the, I again, I, oh, I can't say too much about the end. Very annoying. But um, yeah, I, I liked how it ended I can say that yeah Um, definitely (laughs) and I think that's um it isn't an easy ending and that's um also a really good it's not a I don't want to say it's it's not a happy ever after because it kind of is it kind of is it kind of yeah it is it might not Um, pass for one
1: in like romance terms but no yeah it's I would say it has a happy ending it's a
0: it's a triumphant ending yes and I think that's also not explored um as much and trying to think of all these different um these um, different versions of, of polyamorous relationships as represented in books and, and media, and it's really hard actually to think of There's not um, a lot, yeah. There's not a lot. And also there's not a lot that have um I can think of a couple that have... you know, the the there's a French film, I think where there's a triad and it's that yeah. Yeah, do you know what I mean? And um, uh, it, I can't think of the title at all. Um, and it, you you can find things like that where it's kind of, you know, working through jealousy and it gets very gritty and it gets very, um, it's always got that it, that kind of sad, realist kind of tone to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when you're writing very messy relationships, um, there's not a lot of that. There's not a lot of variety in terms of the way that can play out. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm just wondering, um, you know, especially like uh, in certain genres, I think because of the genre expectations, it makes it a lot more difficult Mm -hmm. to explore darker things like spousal abuse, like, um, you know, intimate partner abuse, like, um, you know, those sorts of issues within relationships, Mm -hmm. because it doesn't lend itself to the happy ever after that people sort of want to read and say, romance or, right. um, you know, the lighter side of speculative fiction or, you know, arguably. So I was just wondering, um, you know, what makes horror a good vehicle for exploring these kinds of dynamics for you? I'm,
1: I'm glad you asked that question because marketing dowry is like walking a tightrope. I made a tweet about this the other day, but, like, it's like explaining the book to other people and getting it to the right readers is this mix of being like fun, sexy, vampire, threesomes in Europe, have a good time. And this is a story about intimate partner abuse. Please check the true warnings and read with care. Like it deals with mental illness and despair and all this kind of stuff. Um, But I think that horror and especially in particular, the Gothic genre is like the perfect home for stories like that. Um, I was able to do a dowry is quite experimental I was able to do a lot of things in this book I think because of the genre that I couldn't get away with at this point in my career if it was a traditional fantasy or a traditional romance like it's queer and polyamorous which I will say is becoming more accepted and people are starting to realize that there's a really big market for that but that's still kind of odd to market it's written in an experimental diary format it has these dark themes But I think horror is such a welcoming home for being experimental and for digging into the darkness and to not shy away from it and not be afraid of it. Um, And especially the gothic genre like raised me like Anne Rice, vampire movies, um, Phantom of the Opera. Like these are my formative, formative texts. Um, And that was a space where the beautiful and the horrifying and the gruesome and the sublime, and the ecstatic and the terrifying are kind of by are necessitated to live hand in hand and so it's a really welcoming home for a story like a dowry of blood and i'm really happy i mean i'm very very happy with the reader response it's been mind-blowing and i think that it has found the right readers because people when you say like a gothic horror romance or a romantic fantasy with gothic overtones they're like oh it's gothic i i'm there's a, there's a more willingness to be taken on a wild ride. Um, I think there's, we talk a lot in the romance genre about building trust with readers and not breaking that trust. And I think that in the Gothic genre, people are a little more willing to like have that trust bend, but not break like to be like, okay, this is really wild. I wasn't expecting this, but I'm along for the ride. I I'm going to trust this author to get me through to a satisfying ending. And I think that I've had a really positive experience with that being situated in the Gothic
0: genre. I think that's yeah. I think again, like the the genre expectation is really key there, isn't it? Because you've got, I mean, it's written in an epistolary form, yes. so it's very much like the original Dracula in that respect, because it's diaries and journal entries. Yes, um, and people and I I love the way it was set out as well. So you have um, in the paperback, it's um, fragments, mm-hmm. so not even full page prose sometimes. You just have fragments on a page and then you move on to the next entry and the entries are various lengths. Yes. And I really think that works. I like that very much. And um, I think when you're, if you're familiar with Gothic horror um, or Gothic novels in general in the Gothic mode, like I think, um, you know that there's probably going to be some, you you can expect a romance potentially if that's what yes. you know. Um, but also people get walled up alive.
1: You know I know. I mean? like,
0: <laughs> and so so it's a kind of like you, you're also expecting gore and you're expecting um, there's a whole host of very well-known gothic horror tropes that pop up mm-hmm. that I think people are willing to expect. I mean, up to and including things like sibling incest or... Mm -hmm. Uh, on the on the sort of more horrifying end people being burned alive people being walled up alive people being like the horrible endings and the tragedy of it and so when you have like a quite a triumphant ending even though quite a lot of blood has been spilt to get there that's a big bonus because people people buying into that genre and knowingly buying into something fairly horrific
1: as much as they're
0: buying into the sexiness and the aesthetic Mm-hmm. Of it, like that—that that decadent gothic aesthetic—comes um, with that darker undertone that I think you can't yeah. can't do without. There's yeah.
1: a an Italian word that I'm going to mangle that is comes up in art theory. I believe it's chiaroscuro, um, and it's the juxtaposition of light and dark in a painting, um, and how they bring out one another more starkly. And I think about that a lot when I think about my work, especially a Dowry of blood because I think that the sweetness is all the more sweet for the pain and the the light spots and the hopeful parts are all the more hopeful because the book is so dark and they kind of bring each other into sharp relief and I think that that's what the gothic genre is all about like that's just what it's about
0: I love that that's a really lovely note to end on I think yeah Um, absolutely (laughs) do you have anything coming out that you would like to let us know about or anything that you would like particularly like to plug while you're
1: here. I've got a lot cooking right now but none of it is uh, announced yet and a lot of it is still in the works and in revision so I don't have anything new to share with you guys just yet but I will say um, if you want to know all about what's going on and also get information about my giveaways and events. I do lots of lives on Instagram with other authors and I give away signed copies and posters and things like that. Follow my newsletter, which is saint.substack.com. And you can also find me on Twitter at S underscore T underscore Gibson and on Instagram at stgibsonauthor. And that is where I live.
0: It's it's very worth signing up to Saint's newsletter, everyone. Thank you.
1: Sometimes you get epilogues to books that I wrote. Very, very enjoyable.
0: Um, yeah, so thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank really you so much
1: for having it. me. I really appreciate it. It's always so much fun to be able to talk about vampires and the Gothic and all that kind of good stuff.
0: So, um, Thank you very much again. And looking forward to seeing what you've, what you've got coming out next. Thanks so much. Yeah, have a wonderful evening. Well, that's all we've got time for. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with the next part of 13th on Thursday. And small bonus material which will be coming out later on the month. Bye now.